I love to gather with a group, put all their names in a jar, and have a couple door prizes to give away. Take the names out of the jar. But then add this little twist, that if your name is picked, we will hand you the gift. That's the yay part. But then part B is you will have the opportunity to give that gift to anyone in the group. Often really neat stuff breaks out because they are then required to explain why they are giving that gift to that person. And it's full of affirmation. It's receiving a gift that is to be given away. And it's a great exercise in a group to stir up good things and great comments about what folks think of one another. There's a sense in which that door prize exercise is related to the image of the good news about Jesus, the gospel that is in this passage in Romans chapter 1. Because what Paul argues is this. We are given this gift that comes with the obligation not to keep it for ourselves, but to give it away. So in that sense, this gift comes with the obligation that we give it away. Watch for it as I read these verses from the book of Romans as we begin to dig into this book, the second message in this new series. This morning we're looking at Romans 1, 8 through 15. By the way, we are a culture increasingly trending away from commitments. If responsibilities sprout, we will enter nowhere to be found. We'll walk up to the edge, but if there is a commitment, uh, we tend to uh, walk back from the edge because nobody wants to be committed. Well, there's a sense in which, as Paul explains in these verses, and we will look, when God shares his grace with us in the glory of the good news, in receiving this grace, unmerited favor, not earned or deserved, receiving the gift of salvation simply by faith, believing in Jesus, relying upon Jesus, receiving Jesus Christ into our life. We do that, and coming with the gospel is an obligation. And we want to think about that obligation this morning. The gospel is a wonderful gift from God. It's free and undeserved with an obligation for all who receive it. And that is simply to give the gift away, to share the gift. Watch this theme self-evidently unfold from these verses. Romans chapter 1 and verse 8. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation 
both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Hear the word of the Lord. Now here in the introduction of this letter that Paul's written, he does what every letter writer did in the first century with the introduction. What he does is he shares his sentiments for the readers. And in reading this in the opening paragraph, it would give the readers, the recipients of the letter, more of a yearning to dig in to understand what was being communicated. So he's following the standard, usual first century pattern. Now this morning, the outline's straightforward and simple. I'm going to ask a question and give three answers. Here's the question. What are the obligations of a gospel life? Many of us in this room have already received Jesus Christ as our Savior. We've embraced following him. Well, what are the obligations of a gospel life? By the way, if you're here this morning and you've never received Christ as your Savior, I'm so glad you're here with an open heart listening. My encouragement for you is that you would receive Christ as your Savior. God made us to relate to Him. We sinned against God and walked out of the garden paradise with Adam, our forefather. That didn't turn out well. And with sin came the curse and death. But God, out of His love for us, ran after us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried. And the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures. And in receiving Christ as our Savior, we give him the only thing we have to offer, and that is our sin. And he gives us, as we acknowledge our sin and trust in him, the free gift of eternal salvation. My encouragement is that you be reconciled to God. Receive the free gift of eternal life offered in Jesus. John 6, 47, Jesus said, one of those red letter verses, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Hear the word of the Lord. What are the obligations then of a gospel life? There are three from this passage. First, we serve the gospel through concerted prayer. Notice verses 9 and 10. He mentions, God is my witness, notice this phrase, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. Now he reaches into the vocabulary of all the words he could use in the first century in the language that he wrote the New Testament. He picks out a special word. It was a word used in the language of the New Testament's translation of the Old Testament for the priestly service. It's a liturgical word. It's about the action of a priest serving the Lord and the people by his movements and his work in the temple. It would say the pre, you know, as it lies there, English word serve, you know, it looks like a benign word, not much is there. Oh, it's a special word. And it paints the picture of the person 
offering service unto God with their life. And so what Paul is calling us to is, uh, you say, Eric, well, what does this serve with my spirit in the world? That Paul's gospel life was a sacrifice gift offered to God. That is that the energy of his life was poured into serving the Lord and serving others as a thank you to God for the gift of salvation. I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And he then starts praying. So his service involves praying, which starts with thanks. Now, uh, it is true that uh, prayer is a simple, glorious, and yet profound discipline. Uh, Too much of our praying is, Lord, give me, give me, give me, give me. I need, she needs, he needs, we need. Give me, give me, give me. Certainly intercession and asking and receiving is a fundamental part of prayer. It's not any less than that, but it's so much more than that. And as he talks about this life, this gospel life of service offered unto the Lord, the service begins with prayer. With prayer that is continuous, not sporadic, he talks about prayer that is without ceasing, verse 9. Prayer that is always, verse 10, a habit of his life. But in his praying, the first thing he mentions is thanks. Do you realize thanksgiving is a part of our discourse and prayer? That we not only come to God with gimme, 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 but we come and recognize that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so we prosecute this gospel life. We live out this gospel life by praying always and unceasingly and included in our praying always and unceasingly is thanks. And what he thanks God for is God's work in Rome to plant this church. You say, Eric, who planted the church in Rome? God planted the church in Rome. There was no missionary on a missionary journey there in Rome. God planted this church. Remember last week we looked at Acts 2.10. Of all the people listed on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, it says, and the Romans. They heard the message. They received the message and believed and took the message home and shared it. And a church was established. Too much cannot be said of what Rome meant to the first century world. That was the seat of everything. That was the imperial capital of the empire. That was the seat of power where Caesar was. That was the seat of law where Cicero was. That was the seat of all kinds of paganism and all of the gods that were worshipped. I mean, everything was in Rome. Paul gets on his knees serving God with his gospel life and he thanks God that there was an entity in Rome and here's what he's thanking God for. It was the church of Jesus Christ. What is glorious about God's work in our world is that in most every sector, and there are some sectors where it is not, but in most every sectors, there are followers of Jesus who gather 
Some of them beleaguered and not in many numbers. There are followers of Jesus in Saudi Arabia who follow Christ, that great threat, and in secret. But all over the world, they're there. And Paul's on his knees and he's saying, God, I thank you that at this bastion of power, Rome, there is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, one of the ways that Paul served our Lord with a gospel life was in prayer that was full of thanksgiving. Now, as we pull up next to it with our yearnings to have a gospel life that would have integrity and God begins to scrutinize us, we have to ask, A, are we praying? And B, is thanksgiving included in our praying? And what are we thanking God for? Here, Paul thanks God for his work in the world, establishing that church in Rome. He says he served the Lord with his spirit in the gospel. How did he do that? He prayed repeatedly and always. You say, Eric, Paul was quite a gospel guy, wasn't he? Yes, he was. And he's going to say more about that and discharging the obligation of the gospel. But before he ever got to the discharge of the obligation, there was something that preceded that. And it was his praying. Before, in that sense, before Paul ever got around in to talking to men about God, he was given to the discipline of talking to God about men. How about you? How about me? How about us at Calvary? Is this us? Do we serve the Lord with his spirit in the gospel? Eric, what are we supposed to do? We, we pray. Before Paul ever infiltrated the world to seek impact, he was praying. Are we praying for our family? Are we praying for our neighbors? Are we praying for our teammates? Are we praying for our schoolmates? Are we praying for those people that we interact with in commerce? Notice verse 8. He's praying for all of them, these believers in Rome, all of them. What if one great step in reaching for others in outreach was first what we did in prayer before we ever got up off our knees and sought to tell anyone about Jesus. We serve the gospel with a praying heart, grateful for the work of the gospel in the world. What if our best work in evangelism and outreach was done on our knees? About 1926, a Presbyterian evangelist named Louis Sperry Chaper founded Dallas Theological Seminary. It's gone on here for about 100 years. I had the privilege of being there. He wrote a book called True Evangelism. And I thought, oh, well, that's, you know, I, I want to know what true evangelism was. And I, I bought the book. And the subtitle's interesting. True Evangelism. Subtitle, Winning Souls Through Prayer. Here's a Presbyterian evangelist who says, here's the key, this is true evangelism. What's true evangelism? It's begging God for powerful influence before we ever say the gospel and live out the gospel before anybody else. What if our witness lacks that prayer? Cannot a good argument be made for the fact that it will lack such galvanizing influence before Paul spoke the gospel, he asked God 
to work in the lives of the people who was there. We serve the gospel through concerted prayer. Is that you? Is that me? Is that us here at Calvary? Secondly, the second obligation is we serve the gospel through connecting for mutual encouragement. Look at verse 11, verse 12, and verse 13. In verses 10 and 11, Paul has shared again the aspiration of his heart to be with them. I've wanted to come to see you. I've been inhibited so far. I want to be with you. Often he's had the intent to come. In fact, he'll come back in Romans 15, 23 and 24 and say, But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So Paul is saying, I'm going to finally get to come to you. And before he gets there, he writes this letter. In verse 11, he describes the reason why he wanted to come. In order that, that he is describing the reason. For I long to see you that I may, that, here's the reason, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now what's amazing is Paul describes this part of the obligation of a gospel life, connecting for mutual encouragement. By the way, our life groups are designed for connections for mutual encouragement. By the way, our adult Bible fellowship classes are designed for connections of mutual encouragement. But what Paul is arguing is that something happens when God's people minister together to each other. There's a mutual movement of encouragement. Now, don't miss the fact that these are new believers. The church has just broken out on the day of Pentecost. So Paul is talking about how these new followers of Jesus are going to encourage him. Do you realize that Proud people who perceive themselves to be better than others are not good candidates for mutual encouragement. Here is Paul, the great, the apostle Paul, the great hero of the New Testament, the writer of so many epistles. He said, I can't get wait to be with you because I'm going to be able to receive your encouragement even as I try to encourage you, mutual encouragement. There's a humility in receiving from one another gifts that God has given to us. And it makes the body of Christ so rich in how we relate. Ministry is a two-way street, a reciprocal experience. And when we engage in ministry, there's a dynamic that goes on as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to magnify the person of God and Jesus Christ. And we see His beauty together and are encouraged. My life has been so enriched in pastoral ministry by God's people. I've learned so much about believing God by being next to folks who suffer. And I've had saints, and I, I was dying a thousand deaths inside for what they were going through, and I've been next to them, seeking to minister to them and encourage them in a very harsh moment, and they have taught me about what it means to just stretch out your life on God. Here I am, stranded out here on omnipotence, just given as I am to the Lord's good care. And they've taught me about faith. 
Uh, people have taught me about hope. I've been involved in situations of great loss and great sorrow and be next to people trying to encourage them. And I was just bleeding out inside and to get a feel for what was in their hearts and their great hope that had been impervious, not touched by the wrenching circumstance that they're going through, I've left greatly encouraged. And then the people of God have taught me about the depths of love. I've been with people who've been through terrible circumstances of loss and treachery and betrayal. And yet when I'd get next to them, when I wanted, you know, I was having uh, felonious assault thoughts and uh, bordering near, you know, murderous thoughts. Let me go back to the impregatory prayer. I'd be next to them, and they'd be talking about forgiveness. And they'd be talking about doing good to those who had wronged them. And they taught me about what it means to be loved by God. They didn't come up with that on their own. We love because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Not because we were deserving, but in spite of the fact that we were undeserving because he's a God of love. I remember uh, Faith. We were sending a mission team to Kosovo, which is around Serbia and has always been a very volatile area. Still is to a certain extent today, but not so much after 99 when NATO... Uh, went in and suppressed the Serbians who were just killing the Kosovar Albanians and others there. We were sending a team there. We were all scheduled to send it, and it gets real, what is the word, restive. It started heating up. They blew the door off the UN consulate in Pristina right before we are sending the team. And I was trying to think, about, God, what do we do? What should, what's the right call? And of all things, I had just stumbled surreptitiously on to the fact that there was a, a retired CIA knock in the church. And uh, so I thought, oh, I'm going to talk to him. So I, w- I went to lunch with him and laid it all out. And he said, hey, I would not send my wife or my daughter into Kosovo in this moment. There were some ladies and some teens, girls who were on the trip to go to the House of Laughter a missionary whose husband had died and left a fatherless child, went to Kosovo when they killed all the men and redded out the children and taught them the glory of the gospel there. It's now the Kosovo Leadership Academy, a neat thing. But anyway, we were trying to figure out what to do. I also had a friend who was in charge of the elite soldiers from our country stationed in the European Command who, if a U.S. citizen is grabbed, they go in and extract them and bring them out in a crisis. So I called him. I said, what am I supposed to do? What, what is your advice? And, and he was very cautionary and said, look, whatever decision you make, just know that you are putting people's lines, lives in peril when you go. So I get this information, and uh, we go to the meeting. I laid it all out and said, all right, what are we going to do? We go on yes or no. So we debated it, then we prayed, then we had the final debate. All right, we got to make a decision. Well, we go on. I want you to know what I know and what I've been told. All right, where are we? And the room was kind of quiet. Nobody wanted to say anything. A 12-year-old girl said this. Look, and the missionary's name there is uh, Nadine. said, look, if Nadine is there all the time and God's taking care of her, we're going to go. We will just trust the Lord 
forget about all this other noise about stuff going on, and we'll go. And they went. That won the day. They went. But that girl was stretching herself out on the promise of God. She went on further to say, hey, if something happens and it's our time to die while we're there, hey, we're not going to alter that. Let's go forward and do this. Her comment, if anybody was weak-kneed in the room before that, they repented of it when they heard that 12-year-old girl trust the Lord and say that. But just her faith came out. I left very encouraged, and I had to go back and ask, what fears am I harboring in my heart that I ought not? And what is inhibiting me? Just that mutual encouragement in ministries like that. And Paul's saying, I can't wait to get there, because when I use my gifts to strengthen you, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to being encouraged. You ever heard somebody say, I went to visit her. She was discouraged, and I left with a full heart because she ministered to me. Or I went to visit him, trying to encourage him, and I left super encouraged myself, having been with him. There's a mutual encouragement that's involved in a gospel life. By the way, I hope that lights some of your fire on Sunday morning because we have the opportunity to be together. And in being together, God uses each of us and each other's lives to be of encouragement. Please don't miss Paul, who was committed to this mutual encouragement. He's also committed to the fact that something's going to happen when we are together believing the Lord and involved in gospel ministry. There was an optimism that he has. Do you hear it in his voice? I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul anticipated these people's hearts to be strengthened. Now, he doesn't unpack all that he means about, Paul, what is this gift? What are you going to impart to them? How are you going to use how God has wired you to serve Jesus Christ, Paul? He doesn't unpack all that. He just says, I'm going to come, and I'm going to impart some spiritual gift, and the result will be you'll be strengthened, I'll be encouraged, and we'll be mutually encouraged. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He talks about a harvest, that I may reap some harvest among you. That's a translation of the word for fruit. In John 15, that term shows up for fruit. You shall bear fruit. Paul was counting on God to do something. He's full of optimism. You don't have here the perspective of grumpy in the seven dwarfs. You know, he was always a, you know, a downer about whatever's going on. Before Paul ever got there, as he was going to give himself to gospel life and ministry, he was counting on God being at work. You know, when I was pondering this this week, you know, it, it makes me think, what are your expectations, Eric, as you come to Sunday? How do you think God will use his word in people's lives? We can aim so low and have no expectation, and quite frankly, I think God is not honored by that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, how do we receive Christ? By faith. So walk in him. So here is Paul that was an optimist. He was brimming with the thought that, I'll tell you what, God is going to work in our meeting together and do his gospel work in our lives. It'll be mutual in encouragement and it'll accomplish the very ends that God wants to accomplish. I love that optimism. Now, when a sport is played, a lot of that, the outcome relates to mental, how the person is 
mentally, how they perceive what's going on. The stronger they are mentally, the better they'll be in competition. Bill Rogers in 1981 won uh, the Open Golf Championship in the British Isles. It's the only major tournament he ever won. He was a golfer from Texas who just rose up one week and did it. And it's really the only big thing he did in his whole golf career. But he rose up that week, and he was fantastic. And they talked to him years later, and they said, Hey, Bill, what was it like in 1981 to be the winner of the Open Golf Championship, the British Open? He said, I'll tell you what. When I was there golfing, all I could see were fairways and greens, which is the two places you're supposed to put your ball, in the fairway off the tee and on the green from the fairway. Then you put it in. And he said, all I could see was I'd just look up, and I just saw fairways and greens. And what he was saying with that comment was, I just knew the ball was going in the fairway. I just knew the ball was going in the green. And here is Paul who's saying, you know what? When I think about coming to Rome, all I can see are fairways and greens. I know God's going to be up to something. Do we harbor an expectancy like that here at Calvary? Is not God honored in that way? And he was expecting God to work at several levels, including the mutual encouragement, including their strengthening as he would use his gifts. Oh, let's... Lift our heads up and look out to see what God is going to do. Paul had an expectation that he was going to work. By faith we go on, arm in arm together, encouraged in the effort with great expectation for what God will do. Finally, we serve the gospel. How do we serve the gospel? We serve the gospel through discharging the obligation to share it with others. Look at verses 14 and 15. Notice the language that he uses, the vocabulary. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to people who are sophisticated, the elites, that was the Greeks. Remember, Greek thought owned the Roman Empire. The barbarians were those perceived to be the uneducated, the more lowly, the ruffians. There's a famous line from a movie about the establishment of the coal mining industry where a group of people come walking out of the mountains and they're a scary looking group. And another group of people are looking at them and said, oh, look, that must be mountain people. And a person who was able to distinguish all the different kinds of people who were in the mountains said, oh, no, th those are foothill people. Those are not mountain people, but... The barbarians would be considered the backwoods people who had no education and who were ruffians and were not very civilized. Paul says, we have an obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager. He says, I am obligated. He also says, I am eager. I am eager. I'm eager to share the gospel. Now, this word obligation, I want to discharge my obligation, is a word used in commerce. It was a word used when you owed somebody money. We could use the English word debt. I am indebted to them. I, I owe them some money. And I must discharge this debt by paying up. It's a word used in Matthew 6 in the Jesus model of prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's something we owe. God, forgive us the debts that we have accrued against your holiness in our sinful rebellion, even as we release others from debts that they have accrued
by sinning against us. That, that's the concept. So Paul says, I have a debt. I am indebted to these people around me. And I need to pay off that debt. What is the debt? The debt is I owe them. Paul, what do we owe them? I owe them a coherent explanation of the good news about Jesus Christ. And this obligation made Paul eager. He puts together the word obligation with the word eager. I am obligated to share the message, to release this debt, to resolve this debt, and I am eager to do so. The notion is that we owe to others to tell them the gospel. By the way, is that how you view your neighbors? Is that how we view our workmates? Is that how we view extended family members? That we are in debt to pay them a clear, winsome, attractive explanation of the gospel. We owe it to others to tell them the gospel. The gospel is a debt we pay in sharing. William Booth, who started the Salvation Army in 1878, was before Queen Victoria in a discussion addressing her as she was engaging him, trying to understand what his life stood for. He said to her, Your Majesty, some people's passion is money. Some people's passion is fame. But my passion has been meant and his life represented a reach for their souls. By the way, what is our passion at Calvary? What are we passionate for? Hudson Taylor, a former generation, long-standing global sharer of the gospel with China, was told one day, you must be in China because you love the Chinese. To which he replied, no, I'm not in China because I love the Chinese. I'm in China because I love God. And he felt a sense of indebtedness to the peoples of the world to hear about Jesus Christ. Don't miss that word, obligation. Marcia Strauss, uh, in a recent prayer letter, Steve and Marcia used to be, years ago, supported by Calvary and missions. Steve went on to be with the Lord, and Marcia's now a, still a partner with SIM International, but she uses three words that start with I that she says, we really need to think like this. First, identify. Who is the Lord leading me to read out, reach out to this week? Secondly, invest. How can I intentionally invest in this person this week? Invite. How can I invite this person into the abundant life of following Jesus? Identify. Invest. Invite. How do you think it would change the ministry complexion at Calvary if to a person we were all committed as the week started? You know, I read Lee Iacocca's book, One Habit of His Life, I took up for myself. It's on Sunday night. Think through your week and organize what you're going to try to accomplish. I like that. What if every Sunday night we said, okay, who is the Lord leading me to reach out to this week? How can I intentionally invest in that person this week? Lord, 
how can I invite this person into the abundant life of following Christ? Remember, you pile this intent on top of that prayer and yearning for mutual encouragement, and you have the heart of what Paul's trying to communicate to the Romans here as he begins, and the heart of a great strategy as a church. Let me ask you, is there any sense of obligation to share the gospel that sits on the conscience of the good folk at Calvary? Kent Hughes said, what freshness would come to our motivation if we saw ourselves as great debtors to our neighbors, our community, our city, to the poor, as well as the rich? Is this how we live? John Dingledine was with Christine and the family with us. Uh, he was an intern here, and, he went, and he's a pastor in Fort Wayne, Indiana now, and I was in, interacting with him this week, and whenever I interact with John, I always think about his heart to reach for others, and I love it. I love being next to him because he was always forcing me to ask, Eric, what are you doing? Back to the three eyes. Who are you identifying? Who are you investing in? Who are you inviting? I thought of him this week in this sense. It was a stir to be around him. Is it any stir to be around us? Does it stir your heart to be around Paul in these verses this morning? A few years ago, Paul Aiken was here. He's the chair of the Billy Graham School of Evangelism at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He was our keynote speaker for our mission weekend and a few days. And he has young children. He's a great guy. He was with David Platt in Birmingham as their global pastor. And um, he's from a neat family. And his heart beats that other people will come to know Jesus. So I was arranging this, and I said, okay, hey, we'll put you up in a hotel, and, you know, we'll wine and dine you when you come, or I guess in the Baptist, we'll at least dine you when you come, you know, we'll take care of you. And we were setting everything up, and he said, Eric, I have young kids, I'll just be driving up from Louisville on Sunday morning. I go, okay, well, hey, we'll, we'll have a great lunch for you, and then, hey, whatever is accommodating on Sunday afternoon, we'll get you whatever room you need, we'll do it, you can, you can come to my house, and you can relax, I won't bother you, you can have the whole... Oh, he said, no, I don't want to do that. I said, you can stay in my office, whatever, I'll bring you back. He said, no, no. He said, is there a Starbucks around? Starbucks. Paul. Starbucks. Why do you want to go to a Starbucks? He was uh, very cagey and didn't, wasn't forthcoming, but then I realized what was going on in the conversation. Paul knew that there are not people who don't follow Jesus at my house. Paul knew that he could stay in circulation and not pass through that day without mixing it up with someone who had yet to come to follow Jesus. And out of his sense of obligation, after lunch, he was over to Starbucks to host conversation and to keep his eyes open for any chance that he would have to share this message of life after he left I had to ask myself and I ask us all together how much of that lives in my heart to have that eagerness to discharge this debt of obligation that we have to share this message that's still this morning good news a great joy for all people a savior has come a Savior has died. A Savior has raised. And everyone who embraces this Savior comes to have hope and life and forgiveness 
and purpose and meaning in life. What a thrill to follow Jesus Christ. Are we following him here as we ought? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pull up next to Paul's heart and it forces us to ask how much of what was in Paul's heart is in our own. What sense of obligation do we carry around? What eagerness is present or absent in our own life? Thank you, Lord, for pace setters who call us to the life that you want us to have. Help us not to bury the glory of the good news in our heart and just wait out death and eternal life. But be, as Paul describes in another letter, living epistles known and read by all men. Not only incarnating the integrity of the gospel, but saying it well and with clarity so that others may come to have hope. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I pray for your grace. I pray for your help. I pray with Augustine, Lord, demand what you will, but provide what you demand and help us by your work in us to be the people you want us to be. Thank you for including us in your great gospel family. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.